Hello out there in cyberspace. Stories of the death of religion in America are overblown. If you're in the right part of the country, there are vibrant Christian communities developing apps, working in Christian startups, and spreading their faith on Instagram and YouTube. There is a whole community and culture just outside of the mainstream using tech in all sorts of wild and interesting ways. With us today to explore the weird world of evangelical tech is Karina Laughlin. She is a professor of media studies at Loyola Marymount University and the author of the excellent book, Redeem All, How Digital Life is Changing Evangelical Culture. The author of the book, Redeem All, How Digital Life is Changing Evangelical Culture. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'd love to get basic stuff out of the way first. Uh, so can you define, for those who may not know, there's a bunch of different sects and types of Christians. What do we mean when we say evangelical? Um, well, evangelicals are conservative, Protestant Christians. Um, they often been defined by sort of their emphasis on the literal, their literal belief in uh, the Bible as the word of God centrality of, of uh, Jesus, um, being born again, um, and uh, a sort of emphasis on activism and sort of getting their faith out there and, and trying to proselytize and, and, and um, things like that. There's a lot of different denominations that, you know, sort of are evangelical um, in some cases and not in others. So it's, it's somewhat of a messy, big tent um, but in general, conservative uh, Christian Protestants is what we're talking about when we talk about evangelicals. Yeah, I think it's the the kind of the the stereotypical. Maybe if you've lived in the South or the Southwest, um, it's kind of the stereotypical idea of a Christian. I think. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of media representations of evangelicals. You know, I think in, in some ways they uh, sometimes get like a, a bad rap or um, in the media as being, um, you know, particularly sort of churchy, Jesus-y or something like that. Um, but yes, uh, mega churches uh, tend to be um, evangelicals. Um, and uh, they also have a really robust media footprint and kind of culture, right? You know, con- um, contemporary Christian music, uh, bumper stickers, billboards, um, it's, uh, evangelicalism is, is, is everywhere in American culture. And they're also very tech savvy, right? Which is kind Absolutely. of what it's about. Right. Yeah. I mean, relative, especially to other religious traditions, um, evangelicals, even historically, um, have, uh, been early adopters of especially consumer media technologies. Um, and they've kind of created a parallel popular culture in a lot of cases, um, you know, all the way going back to, for example, radio, the first mass medium in, in, in the United States, uh, we could argue, um, 
they were, you know, creating um, evangelical radio shows, um, uh, television, of course, uh, famously or infamously. Uh, we had televangelists um, and televangelism becoming really popular and, and, and um, even though it suffered a lot of scandals, remains really popular for a certain um, subset of people. Um so uh, it's no surprise that they've also been early adopters of technology and created their own, um, you know, apps and uh, technological products uh, to serve churches and to serve an evangelical audience. Just a small anecdote about like what this can look like in the real world. I'm from I'm from Dallas, um, where there are a lot of mega churches, and uh, there's a lot of political power behind like uh, the evangelical churches there. Um, it would not, it was not uncommon. It happened to me a couple times where it's like you happen to see a coffee shop that's an independent place. You're like, oh, that's not Starbucks. I'll go check that out. Um, you go in and you take, you take your order, you're sitting down, you're reading a book or what have you. And then 10, 15 minutes later, somebody comes up and starts proselytizing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe tries to get you to sign up for an app. And mm-hmm. it turned out that this place, is a front group, well, that maybe is more sinister than it sounds, but it's like the the whole reason the coffee shop exists is to draw parishioners in to these church services, mm-hmm. right? We actually have several here in LA too. Right. I don't think that, yeah, there's one right on Venice Boulevard. I drive by it all the time, a coffee shop called Coffee Connection that's run by a church. There's one in Santa Monica. Um, so it's a pretty common strategy and it's kind of the same thing, this, this uh, trying to be sort of what they call in but not of the world, right? Like, we want to be out there. We want to be attracting people with the things they like, whether it's a coffee shop or an app. Um, but we can't be of the world, meaning we can't be uh, sort of uh, taken in by sort of the, the the darker side of popular culture, what they would consider the darker side. All right. So walk me through Christian startup culture. Like, what does it look like? What does it mean to develop an app uh, for evangelicals? I think the most interesting thing to me when I started looking into Christian startup culture um, in Silicon Valley, I spent some time, you know, actually um, in uh, the the San Francisco area, but also in places like Dallas and and, um, Nashville and other places where people are creating apps geared toward a Christian audience. Um, The most interesting thing to me was that Christians were really attracted to this idea coming out of Silicon culture that consumer media technologies uh, could positively change the world. Right. So, um, you know, or, or put, put a dent in the universe as, as Steve jobs, uh, you know, said. Um, So they were really attracted by this idea that if consumer media technologies can change the world for the better, which was sort of a big part of Silicon Valley sloganeering, especially around 10 years ago, um, then, uh, you know, Christians using that technology could help to uh, make uh, culture more Christian um, or could even, you know, in some cases I heard them say, you know, help them, you know, evangelize to the world and maybe even um, hasten the return of Christ, right? Like actually fulfill biblical prophecies as well. Now, not, not all of them put them put their mission in such stark terms, but this idea coming out of Silicon Valley was incredibly attractive to a lot of um, evangelicals who then um, decided to create their own apps, their own um, technological products, um, with the hope, you know, to varying degrees that they would, um, you know, uh, uh, you know 
make a dent in in in, um, in popular culture and 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 help people become better Christians or become Christians. So, what do those apps look like? Like, what does an app look like that is trying to hasten the return of Jesus Christ? I mean, it's you know, it there are so many different evangelical apps. I think there's there's apps that are geared towards churches. So, um, tithing apps have become incredibly common. Just sort of when you go into an evangelical church, it's 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 pretty normal to just be sort of directed to an app to tithe. So, there's all sorts of apps that um, are sort of at that level and just sort of um, serve Christian communities in that way. But then there's other apps, um, for example, like you version the. Bible app, which um, was created by a church in Oklahoma, Life Church, um, which its its mission is more sort of theologically broad, and it's um, trying to get the Bible to every uh, person on earth, um, translated into every language, even languages that are spoken only by um, you know a couple thousand people or even a couple hundred people. Um, uh, in fulfillment of, of a biblical prophecy that once the Bible is brought to every tribe and tongue, um, you know, the, that, uh, that Jesus uh, can return. All right. I have to ask because anybody I've, I've told that we're having this conversation brings up this one specific app. Um, I think even when I reached out to you uh, for the initial interview, we were like, oh, you want to talk about the porn app? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so right. what, like what, what's, what's the deal with the, the evangelical porn app well porn is seen as a really a great evil um, in evangelical culture that can tear apart families that can sort of lead people away from faith um, and it's just everywhere right as we all know porn is very accessible right and so it's seen as a huge problem within evangelical culture and there's been a, a, a whole suite of technological solutions um, there's a few different apps that uh are geared towards uh, accountability. So what they do is you sign up for this app and then the app shares your browser history with account with an accountability buddy every month. Um, and so you uh, keep that person accountable for not looking at porn and they keep you accountable for not looking at porn. Um, I think there's a couple of those. One, one that I know about is, is covenant eyes. Um, there's uh, another app um that uh, just uses AI and detects any sort of like nudity. So it's not, it's not just about porn, but it's like, if you're looking at Twitter, it can, or it purports to be able to block any sort of nudity on um, uh, the internet that you might encounter to just sort of completely keep you away from porn. Um, and then there's Google Chrome extensions uh, that are just about, you know, blocking porn. Um, I think maybe the most interesting one is is also a ministry, and that's Triple X Church. It's an it's an app. They also do the accountability thing, um, and I think they have a like you can call or, or email with people if if you're suffering from porn addiction, and they they, they have a sort of plan to get people out of uh, porn addiction. But they also go to um, you know like adult film conventions, porn conventions, um, and they proselytize to, um, you know, people working in the adult film industry. Um, and the woman running it now uh, is a former adult film star. Um, and she's now a, um, a pastor um, in San Diego, and she, and she runs this app and this ministry. Um, so there's been a lot of innovation in the evangelical sphere around trying to help people stay away from 
um, internet porn, right? Trying to help people stay away from the dark side of the internet. Because as much as evangelicals want to be out there and want to be sort of on the internet and attracting people using these technological tools, uh, they definitely see that as uh, a, a dark side of the internet. Yeah, it was kind of fascinating reading the book. How much is um, how much energy is geared towards putting those guardrails up? Right, making sure that the 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 less the the more worldly parts of the internet don't interfere with the like the world that they're building. Right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I really like the way that you put that. Um, I, I I think that's absolutely true, um, and I, I I think in general, um, yeah, I mean that that's something you could also see uh, outside of evangelical culture with. Uh, sort of moral panics around like what children can and can't access online. Um, uh, But, you know, it's just sort of trying to keep the world out while still trying to be in the world. So it kind of goes back to that, you know, sort of a central directive of evangelical activism in the world, Um, being out there, attracting people, you know, having your coffee shop, right. Um, But not, but, but also staying um, true to, you know, your, your faith. You, you, there's so many interesting connections you make in the book. Um, can you take us through the through line of how a mega church becomes a startup church? Yeah. So, um, mega churches, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening in the United States or watching in the United States, um, are, are familiar with these because they're all over the country. Um, they, they, this trend kind of started in the 1970s with the church growth, growth mo- movement. Um, and, um, a few evangelicals who started looking at the American suburbs and saying, um, wow, here is a population of, of people who, um, you know, have moved out to the suburbs. Um, they're, they're, you know, somewhat modern. They are really into these strip malls with big box stores. Let's build a church targeted towards them that they're going to like, right? Um, towards what they call the spiritual seeker. Um, and so that's when these churches started to pop up that actually look like, um, you know, and, and by design look like, uh, you know, TJ Maxx's or Olive Garden's, right? Or, or, or are next to a TJ Maxx or an Olive Garden, right? Um, so I, and I, have I think restaurants and stores in them sometimes too, right? Often, yeah, have big campuses with all sorts of stuff you can do and, uh, going back again, the coffee shop and, and stuff for the kids and, and childcare and all this stuff, um, to make it attractive for, uh, this spe- specific type of person, this suburbanite, right? Um, th- these churches were, um, incredibly successful. This strategy was really successful. Um, and churches kind of grew and grew and grew, um, to the point where, um, you know, if you were a particularly charismatic pastor, sort of pastoring one of these mega churches, you know, you, you might be speaking in a, in a stadium, right? Like Joel Osteen or, 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 um, uh, any, any other, you know, sort of person you could point to. Um, and, and so, media kind of became necessary, right? And, and, um, the, these mega churches kind of became multi-site. So uh, one church would have like four different sites and, and they did it in different ways where either the the pastor would be simulcast into a a different, smaller church, uh, where people could kind of go almost like an overflow church, uh, that, that then became its own church. Or, um, you know, there would be a, there would be like a sort of a church brand, 
And it, and the, the logic of branding, the logic of marketing coming directly from the corporate world influences what these churches look like, how they think about themselves. They're directly taking cues from, um, you know, Target, from In-N-Out, from Costco, from these places where they see, uh, um, you know, Americans uh, going and enjoying and, you know, sort of participating in, right? Um, and so... Uh, with the sort of advent of the uh, the startup and startup culture and another sort of really popular cultural form emerging um, came this idea of, of uh, you know, the, the church maybe functioning um, more like a startup as well. Um, and uh, I went to, to Life Church, which is um, uh, probably the most it- technological. Is advanced it, church. Is it Life Church or Life dot Church? Uh, I I think it's Life it's Life Church. They used to be Life Church dot TV, okay. and then they changed it. Um, it's a good question. I I think they're just sort of you don't say the dot. I don't think I've ever heard it, but I might be wrong well, about that. I just think it. I mean, maybe it's just my my internet poisoned brain. When I because in the in the book it's written Life dot Church. So I always mm-hmm. said it in my head was as I was reading Life Church. I think it just evokes this startup culture, basically. But yeah, please, like you, there's sure. uh, a pretty large portion of the book devoted to kind of like Life Life Church as a case study, and I'm, I'm very interested to hear you talk about it. Well, I think what you're saying is like it's no accident, right? It's supposed to be kind of like a digital church in the real world. Um, in some ways, right? So, um, uh, Life Church was a mega church. Uh, it's a really successful church. Uh, it's also a multi-site church. But at their main site um, in Edmond, Oklahoma, um, they actually have, you know, um, they they run U Version, which is a really mega popular. It's kind of the killer app in evangelicalism. It's been um, downloaded uh, 500 million times all around the world. It's used across like sort of evangelical influencer and media culture. Um, uh, it's really, it's just really popular. Um, and they started it right there at the church. They spent $20 million. Uh, it was reported by the New York times that they spent $20 million in just 2013 alone, attracting people from all over the country, developers, uh, engineers, right. People who were working at startups, um, to come to their church in Oklahoma, um, and create technology. Um, they've created not only version, they also have, um, open, which is, um, uh, which where they create resources for churches. They created a church online platform that I was told by, uh, and then they give this stuff away all freely. Right. Um, I was told by, uh, some people and I, I can't verify this, that, um, for-profit or even not-for-profit ch- uh, other church online platforms went out of business because of the popularity of Life Church's church online pop- platform. Um, you know, and, and when you go there, you know, they have futurists, they have, um, you know, engineers. It looks really very similar to, um, you know, just uh, secular tar- uh, tech startups that um, you, you would find um, in Silicon Valley. All right, we're going to pause there for a break so I can create an ad break for the podcast version of the show. If you're watching on Twitch, we will be starting right back up immediately. If you're listening to the show on uh, afterwards as a podcast, please listen to these lovely ads. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, that's enough silence for me to properly put it in after when I'm editing this later. Uh, thank yeah. you for thank you for sticking around Twitch stream. Um, here's a good question from the chat. Uh, Emily, I see that question. I'm going to put a pin in it though, because I do want to, uh, kind of dovetail off of what you were just talking about. And we've, you mentioned this at the top, but there is this compatibility between evangelical culture and like what I would call Silicon Valley ideology. Um, Mm -hmm. can you talk about that a little bit more? They kind of work very well together, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think so. And I think, um, as I kind of alluded to before, the ideal, uh, that sort of like I- ideal figure of the social entrepreneur, uh, you know, it used to be that you couldn't just make an app. It had to be doing something good, you know, or if it wasn't, if it was making a lot of money here, then it should be giving like an equal amount of money to people in Africa or, you know, it, it had to be doing something good, right? And that was a big part of uh, Silicon Valley culture, uh, this sense um, and that was internalized and self-reflexive that any consumer media technology had to be um, saving the world or doing something, something good, positive, right? I think a lot of that veil has been lifted over the past few years and, and uh, it's now okay to just be a uh, just for-profit machine, right? Um, but that idea was, you know, is it really appealing to evangelicals, right? And there's a, uh, a venture capital um, firm, called Praxis that I talk a little bit about in the book. And they um, fund businesses uh, based on this idea of what they call redemptive entrepreneurship. And I really saw this theme coming across in my conversations and my ethnographic work with um, evangelical tech uh, founders, this idea that, um, you know, any entrepreneurship should also have, uh, you know, the goal of uh, redeeming something, right? Whether it's, for example, helping people stay away from internet porn, or whether it's just we're going to run a business with Christian values, and people are going to see that and be influenced by the way we're running a business. Um, so sort of running the, the the gamut from like, we're actually going to redeem the world in this sort of theological way, to we're just going to bring Christian values into uh, the tech world. Um, and and thereby, you know, just by a presence, make things better. Um, but this that was sort of a, a goal that undergirded a lot of these projects that um, in in what uh, people called and what I called in my book, the faith tech sector. Um, question from chat. So how did COVID-19 affect all of this? Well, COVID-19 forced um, those uh, churches that were maybe uh, wary of uh, all these technological tools to adopt them, right? Uh, you know, people had to go online and churches had to go online. There's uh, even mainline churches, right? When we think of evangelicals, we think of them as being much more technologically savvy, um, whereas mainline churches might be a little bit more hesitant 
in general. Um, there's the Lutheran church that I live nearby, uh, and, and they started hosting online services, right? So I think, and I think the all the work that um, evangelicals had done, you know, from 2000, let's say 2006, which when there was Life Church started the first online church, to 2020 when churches were forced to go online, all the work and all the infrastructure that evangelicals had laid down during that time all of a sudden um, became incredibly useful, you know, just like in, you know, education and teaching, like all these sort of, uh, like how Zoom became super popular all of a sudden or, or other or the other apps, the same thing happened Um in evangelical culture. And, you know, they already had uh, all these tools ready for COVID-19 um, for the sort of, you know, conditions that, that COVID-19 caused everybody having to stay home. Uh, wow. Emily in chat is as if she's following my, my guide <laughs> that I wrote because her, her next question is, is my next question as well. Uh, and that is, so there's this, Part of this world is not just the apps, it's also the influencers. It's mm-hmm. people on TikTok and YouTube that are making videos trying to draw people in. There's a whole evangelical influencer culture, right? And I think we we come across those things in the mainstream uh, when they're being mocked, I think. Um, that's mm-hmm. when we tend to see them. But there is – it's a huge audience – Right. Can you talk a little bit about what that what that work is like for them and kind of what their goals are and how what their TikTok looks like versus mainstream TikTok? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I'm working on a project now about Christian TikTok. Um, uh, but what I wrote about a lot in the book was about especially women on Instagram. Um, there are a lot of influencers on Instagram who are kind of what you might expect they, they look like and they post pictures like what you might expect from um, an evangelical woman, the sort of like trad wife, right? Sort of like traditional femininity on display and expressed. Um, you know, there's a lot of Christian uh, mommy bloggers who then became like sort of mommy influencers. Um, and um, so there's, there's a lot of that. And I call the, the sort of, uh, their their sort of expression of femininity, popular parochial feminism, um, because it sort of latches on to some of the semiotics of uh, evangelical culture um, and especially its parochialism um, and its uh, sort of traditional belief in male headship or the the way that um, you know men should sort of be the leaders of the family and, and women should sort of be in charge of the children in the home, right? Sort of these traditional domestic spheres with God ruling over all of it. Um, so uh, while they express that on Instagram, what I found really interesting when I was doing research on, on them was uh, that they also expressed uh, a lot of feminist beliefs um, to the point where um, – you know, some of them, people like Jen Hatmaker, who is incredibly popular, you know, she has this amazing, pod- you know, super popular podcast. She's popular on Instagram. She's popular across all sorts of media. Um, but she's come um, out uh, against a lot of the conservative evangelical stances, especially on LGBT marriage. Uh, she's come out against transphobia and homophobia and evangelical culture. Um, and she's been, she's like hated by some people, 
and loved by others. Uh, so I think a lot of these influencers uh, who are women are really sort of pushing conversations that wouldn't have been had had they not had access to these platforms where they're able to express a more modern um, view of, uh, you know, especially gender relations in evangelical culture. Another place this is happening that you talk about in the book is conversations about race in black Mm -hmm. churches, mostly happening in podcasts, right? Well, I I looked at it in a podcast. I'm sure that's not the only place that it's happening. I mean, there's, uh, you know, books, there's, um, but there's, there's really, there's several really popular uh, podcasts run by black Christians. And when I was talking to them for in, you know, 2020 and 2021, um, they were really trying to push uh, the evangelical church, which is, you know, the, the, there, it isn't like um, Catholicism where there's a pope or there's some central authority, but there are, uh, you know, sort of multiple centers of authority like Bible colleges, like, uh, you know, the National Association of Evangelicals, like all these big nonprofits and, and uh, even big media empires like um, Lifeway Christian Resources, which is run by the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and there are a lot of those uh, organizations and power structures in evangelicalism are run by white evangelicals, right? Um, And there's a lot of, uh, you know, writing, great writing about how um, a lot of evangelical culture has been defined by whiteness, right? And um, Jamar Tisby wrote a book called The Color of Compromise, going all the way back to, uh, you know, slavery and uh, sort of the evangelical response to slavery. Anthea Butler wrote about this idea of evangelical gentility, right? Maybe they won't talk about race, but they're also going to punish like a black Christian who decides to talk about race as being divisive, right? So uh, all these podcasters, uh, you know, during the time of like, you know, the uprisings in 2020 started uh, talking about uh, pushing back against some of this evangelical gentility, this this sense that, uh, you know, talking about race uh, was sort of uh, wrong or um, divisive. And they tried to open up more conversations about race. And again, it's another sort of like division point. Or or, uh, or a fissure in evangelical culture um, that has um, that has always been there, but I think because uh, these Black Christians now have access to this really powerful media, there it's it's a lot more prominent than it that it might be. Like it can't be you know sort of swept under the rug in the same way. Yeah, I think from the outside, people look at American Protestant Christianity specifically as a monoculture. Um, right. and it's not, it's like you said, there's all sorts of fissures and divisions and all sorts of arguments about, um, you know, everything from, from liturgy to exactly how to set up your church. Right. There's all sorts mm-hmm. of, there's all sorts of arguments and conversations. Um, and like which wow. evangelist is, is in trouble and which one is righteous, etc. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, whenever we, we, we often hear about evangelicals in relation to politics, right? That mm-hmm. evangelicals have been seen as like, or, you know, the Republican Party at prayer. Um, but, but to do that, to make that distinction, pollsters poll white evangelicals, right? So there are evangelicals of, of, of there's, there's vibrant 
cultures and sites of evangelicalism that are non-white. Um, there, uh, there's uh, the tradition of the black church, a lot of that which intersects with evangelical culture, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, it's always kind of a fiction to think of evangelicalism that way, even though it's useful for understanding political participation, right? Because 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Well, that's a, that's a really powerful statistic. It's a really big number. And it gives us a sense of what white evangelical culture looks like. But evangelicalism is not just white. And it never has been. So all this, you know, there's this narrative that I kind of uh, checked up at the top of the show that religion is in decline in America, fewer people going to church, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if you look at these mega churches, you know, and we're in the places where I used to live and look at the parking lots on Sunday, it doesn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you think all of this adoption of technology, this rush to develop apps and kind of meet people where they live, I guess, mm-hmm. is, there, is it any of it having an effect? Are some of these churches growing? Um, it's really hard to say. I think when you look at uh, the statistics, um, you know, the growth of the millennial nuns is a real thing. So people, you know, under 40 have been moving away from organized religion and especially been moving away from evangelicalism, um, you know, and, and there's sort of some hard numbers and hard data on this. Um, that being said, right, I mean, th- this and this is something that's well known within evangelical culture, and it's part of the reason that they're they're trying to reach out it, via these technological tools that they see as really popular among these people, right? Um, so they're trying to say, hey, we're we're hip, we're cool, we can still be part of the conversation, right? Um, uh, and that's their strategy. Uh, is it working? Um, is it's, it's, it's very, very hard to say, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing I think to measure. Um, my belief is that, um, it isn't working in the way that they wanted it to work. Right. Um, and there's a lot of, because of a lot of this growth of, 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 you know, division, there's also a big growth of the ex-evangelical movement, right. The evangelicals who used to be, uh, or evangelicals who have left the faith, right? And there's a big podcast devoted to that. Um, and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, social media campaigns that uh, that um, are related to that. Uh, there's been the growth of like the Me Too movement in evangelical culture. So all of this, um, you know, sort of opening up of division and deba- debate that has come along with the move to modernize evangelical culture by making it more digital, by integrating digital technologies, uh, has had, uh, you know, um, unintended effects, I think. Yeah, every, um, every culture war you choose to fight hardens the faithful, but also pushes some folks out, right? Yeah, that's the right way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. How do you think, has the internet and all this technology changed the faith at all how like you can't just you're too you're affected by your tools too mm-hmm. right it's a two-way street um you it's not something you can just pick up and use to change the world in your own image it also is changing you as you use it um how do you think that all this tech is changing evangelicals i think there's a lot of ways um you know and i think we've, we've kind of touched on, on on some of them you know the site the uh the 
way that people who would not have been able to have spoken before, you know, women who would not be able to preach, right, all of a sudden have these uh, sort of congregations on Instagram, right? For, that's just one example, right? Uh, you know, so the the sort of more voices and opening up more voices has changed um, evangelical culture in that way, right? Um, I also think there's uh, looking at it a different way, like different understanding of scope, right? So an understanding of uh, reach and potentially global scope that, uh, you know, a church like Life Church has, right? They have an online church that attracts people from all over the world. Um, so that changes the kind of messages that they put out there, right? If you're speaking not to a local community, but to what you see or what you imagine to be a global community, uh, you know, you have a different um, understanding of your own mission. Um, and so I think that the tools allow for that sort of change in um, uh, the evangelical imagination, uh, which has been um, influential, I think, in, um, in, in terms of how evangelicals have kind of moved, moved forward. Um, all right. So to, to close this out, can you tell us a little bit more about your book? Um, what else is in there that we haven't touched on? Where can people find it? Uh, this is it. I have one right here. Beautiful. Uh, it's kind of got a glare on it. Redeem all how evangelical life is changing even, uh, or how digital life is changing evangelical culture. I should know the title. Uh, and it's from the university of California press. Um, uh, I think you can get it anywhere. I don't know. I've never tried to get it. They just sent them to me. I think if you Google it, you can get it. I've got a good what? question from, Ch- I was playing the outro music, but I'm going to stop it. Cause I just got a good okay. question from chat. Okay, cool. Um, I'd like to see how this would affect communities in rural America. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you kind of see looking at that? Cause they, it is very like suburban mega churches, very mm-hmm. different from rural churches. Mm-hmm. Did you look mm-hmm. at that at all? Did mm-hmm. you have any experience with that? Um, I, I would say my, my experience with that was somewhat minimal. Most of the churches that I, I spent time in and talked to, had had pretty large congregations. I know there's a lot of rural churches that have lost members and don't have the resources of some of these churches. Uh, you know, their life church, I would say, you know, they, uh, that, that infrastructure that they've created is pretty vast and, you know, they give all this stuff away for free. So it can be used all over, um, you know, all across by anyone, um, running a church. Um, uh, then kind so of like, like what's happened in the rest of America where these large mega churches have kind of drained parishioners and people from these, uh, like you're, you're seeing the closing down of main street America, but main street church. Right. Mm-hmm. And then to replace it, people get, if they can't move into the suburbs or the cities, they're getting apps that kind mm-hmm. of fill in those blanks. I mean, I know that's, we're just kind of speculating here, right? But it, it sounds very similar. I mean, I, I do think that's a fear that I heard people talk about. Like they don't want to, you know, when people are planting a church or starting up a church, that's something that's, that's, that's talked about, right? Are we just stealing parishioners like from other places? Um, and it certainly could be the case. Um, I, I didn't like see evidence that that was happening. 
right? But it is a fear I know that that I've heard people talk about that, you know, they don't want to just like sort of replace local uh, local churches. I do think the mega churches have done that, right, yeah. in a lot of ways, right? Um, and I do think te- the, the, the way that technology technology has been integrated and diffused um, and distributed across evangelical culture could be potentially doing the same thing. Now I'm really going to play the outro music. So in chat, don't ask any more good questions. <laughs> the book is redeem all it's wherever, uh, you, wherever you get books and it's really good. The author is Karina Laughlin. Thank you so much for coming on to cyber. If you like the show, like subscribe, leave us a comment. Uh, it helps other people find the show. Uh, if you're watching this live on Twitch, you missed the beginning of it. It'll be available as a VOD quite shortly. And then as a podcast in an hour or so, as soon as I can get it up, I'm pretty hungry. going to go eat lunch. Uh, but, you know, we will be back again next week with two more conversations about uh, cyber and technology. I've already recorded one of them. Um, it's about using open source intelligence to help people escape Ukraine. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. We will be back uh, then. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.